Welcome to a very special edition of the Pacific Rim Pro Wrestling Podcast. The podcast that takes you from Seattle to Tokyo at all points throughout history. From the Seattle area, I'm Jim Valley, and we take you across the Pacific Rim, the Pacific Ocean, to Tokyo, Japan, and the leading author and journalist and historian for pro wrestling in all of the Far East, Fumi Saito. And it's a, a very sad day, Fumi, because uh, the death of uh, Masa Saito, we're just learning about it. And uh, you work very close, uh, often with uh, Mr. Saito throughout his life and career. Uh, what are your thoughts right now? What has been uh, going on since you learned of his passing? My thoughts, well, this is what happened all morning. <clears throat> this morning is my my Monday morning, you know, um, about 14 hours ago now that uh, I got a few phone calls, you know, and messages. Um, some people were look, you know, heard that uh, Masa Saito passed away. So I didn't know about it. Then I, no, no, let me find out. I didn't hear about it, right? So I, you know, left a message and uh, I sent a few messages and uh, amateur wrestling people and a couple more other, you know, people who might know anything about it because I have not spoken with Masa probably three or four years now, you know? And uh, I don't have his phone number anymore since he moved to his um, rehab, you know, place in Osaka. And that's what I thought he was at, you know. And uh, this detail is still sketchy. He passed away this past Saturday. And uh, Kensuke, you know, Kensuke Sasaki and Akira Hokuto, they are friends, you know. Their office announced it as of this evening in Tokyo time, um, Masa Saito's passing. And uh, not much details was, you know, and, but and a little bit of note from Michiko Saito, his, you know, his wife, you know, and uh, no funeral service, nothing is announced at this point, you know, and uh, they, they'll be making some announcement now. But uh, yes, he, um, uh, as, as far as I gathered, he, he passed away this past Saturday. So it's been two days now, but nobody knew about it until today. Now, he's been in uh, poor health for quite <clears throat> some time. Yes, actually, since 2001. 17 years um, um they didn't know it was parkinson's or it could be you know the some doctor gave him you know it was als you know you know the garrick you know Rugeric disease right thing. als or or the accumulation of his head trauma over the years you know or a serious case of you know, uh, arthritis and other things, you know, so they've been to, you know, Masa and wife, you know, Michiko, they've been to different doctors in states, here, and a couple other places, you know, last 17 years, and to find out what really, you know, was the deal. And then uh, Parkinson's, you know, like a severe case of advanced stage of uh, Parkinson's. So and, an advanced uh, he's stage. He's rehab place, you know. So he's been uh, Parkinson's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because his face was shaking, you know, cheeks, and his hands were shaking, you know, and uh, his voice was like 
well, he was very hard to understand to begin with, his voice and, you know, <laughs> the way he spoke. And some people, as a joke, you know, they were saying, like, you need an interpreter, you know, when you speak with Masa. That was a joke in wrestling. But uh, I was always able to understand him, you know, you know, no problem. But uh, I believe it was 2014, summer of 2014, I last saw him. So it was, it's been four years then, yeah. Now, when you and I were messaging before the show, you called him yeah. your godfather in the business. Oh, yes, yeah, because um, we met back in 1982 or three, you know, right after his last WWF at the time. Um, he moved, moved to, actually moved to Minnesota, and then we met, you know, and uh, I was already, uh, you know, semi-pro semi-amateur but uh, you know like I, I was still in college but i was you know doing magazine work you know every month at the saint paul civic center you know i was at the ringside taking photos you know and take notes and uh start writing you know not so good but stories sending you know stories and photos to our magazines the magazine i ended up working full-time for the for 30 years or so and i was rookie then then Massa moved from New York to Minnesota. He actually moved to Minnesota. And uh, see, a lot of people thought, you know, AWA, you know, Minnesota, AWA was his home, right? But actually, he already had 18-year career in America by then. You know, he moved to America back in 1967, you know? And he started with Mike LaBelle's, you know, Los Angeles, you know, territory. Then the, the the longest place he's actually had his run was Roy, you know, Roy Shire's San Francisco territory. You know, but uh, now that it's you know San Francisco territory's history, that the, not too many people know about it. You know, the, was there territory in San Francisco? Of course there was, right? But the, even the journalists or the fans over, you know, you have to be over fifty to even know about San Francisco. You know what I mean? But, I wasn't uh, aware. Of, I knew of San Francisco, obviously, but I didn't know that he was uh, so long, had so much tenure. Yeah, Roy Shire's territory. territory. He he, that was the territory he worked the longest. He was the working horse of uh, one tag team with Kinji Shibuya. See, Kinji Shibuya is about ten years older than he he was, you know, and uh, they wanted to make a tag team, Kinji Shibuya and Mr. Saito, Masa Saito at the time. Masa Saito was the working horse of the team, you know, but he just moved from Japan and he was going to, you know, have wrestling career in America much younger, right? And uh, yeah, that San Francisco was the place uh, he he worked the longest, actually, not the AWA. He was already 39, 40 when he came to Minnesota, you know? Yeah. He was born in 1942, August 7th, okay? 1942. Um, today he was well next month he would have been 76 he died 75 you know he was always 20 years older than i was so why do you consider him your uh your godfather godfather yeah yeah because i was like uh i probably told you the same story that this i was going to college in minnesota and also was doing wrestling magazine work I was also washing dishes at the Japanese restaurant where he came over, you know, every couple, three times a week, lunch or dinner. 
and I was always happy that he was here, you know, at the at the restaurant. And I, you know, as soon as he comes over, I pull chair and can I sit with you? And I, young enough and dumb enough, right? Young and excited. And uh, he was, you know, okay, well, okay, you sit here. And I, he taught me business. You know. And uh, you know, when you were twenty-one, you're still very much a fan, right? You know, you, you know. You like it so much, and uh, I was really thinking about. I was, you know, getting out of college, and I should I get a real job or should I really start working for a wrestling magazine full time? You know, right out of college. And uh, I, I think I told you about this story that the, I asked the same question to Jumbo Tsuruda. You know, at the time, AWA champion, right? He, he came over to Minnesota and, you know, had a long tour and all that. Jumbo was the one. Okay, if you like it so much, do it, right? And Masa was the one to told me to get a job. I mean, real job. <laughs> I thought the, this wild partier type Masa was going to tell me, okay, okay, if you like it so much, do it, right? And uh, rather conservative Jumbo Tsura would tell me to get a real job. It was the other way around. Yeah, but the Masa... Um, really taught me a lot about business, the fundamentals, you know, basics, and uh, the wars, kayfabe, you know, all those things. Yeah. What do you think is the most uh, important lesson, or the one that sticks the most in your mind that he taught you? Ah, uh, so much I can't really. Ah, uh, that's hard. That's so hard that. Uh, uh, well, wrestlers still want to win, you know. If we, you know, like uh, today's, you know, similar to Brody's thing, um, today's, you know, internet-oriented wrestling fan or even wrestling journalist or the more information-oriented people think that uh, wrestling is all work. Of course it is work. Therefore producers and the booker and the promoter can do whatever they want to and wrestler would do it, right? No, no, no. It's like wrestlers still want to win, even though it was work. You know what I'm saying? Because the point is they want you to think it's real. You know, that's a real traditional way of wrestler. But the, what people don't a lot of people don't understand was that if it's work you they can produce whatever the hell they want to you know to produce the storyline and the wrestlers will follow the script or scenario or whatever accordingly right master said no um wrestlers should decide how they want to present and they can say no to what you don't like well, probably today's wrestling business is much different, you know? So produced, you know? Everything's is more, I don't know, more scripted, you know? It's, of course it's scripted, but uh, back then, what Masa was telling me was, you can still say no to what you don't like. Then you work accordingly, or something like that. Does it make sense? You know, what's interesting is yeah. to hear him talk about this is obviously he had very legitimate credentials and a reputation for that in, yeah. the, in the business. Um, 
it's not an exact comparison, but he's almost like Haku, where you have these legitimate credentials that everybody knows about and respects, but yet... I mean, tough guy, you mean? Yeah, and he didn't have, like, like the most perfect win-loss record. He was willing to do business, sort of like, like Haku was. Japanese heel. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, also, of course, and the, also the tag, lose. Yeah. And lose. Yeah, of course. And tag team match, tag team, um, tag team with Kinji Shibuya, it was very 60s, 1960s, very stereotypical Japanese heel, like salt, you know, salt throwing heel. You right. Know? Throw the yeah. salt, but the Pearl Harbor attacks, all that. Yeah. Sure. And then bow and smile and cheat, you know. He did that too, you know. But, uh, in Florida, okay, he started with, you know, California run, you know, Los Angeles, Mike LaBelle office, and the long, real long run with Roy Shires, San Francisco. He moved up to Vancouver, you know, Jim Koniski's territory. He even had the Australian tour when Jim Burnett had, you know, Australian tours, you know. Then uh, after a while, he, uh, he went to Florida. Florida was the second longest run he had. See, most people remember Masa was AWA run, but um, there was like 18 year history before AWA. The Florida was his favorite place too, you know, not because of weather, but uh, he, he had uh, Duke Keomuka and Hiro Matsuda friends, you know. And uh, Masa was doing take on all comers thing in Florida too, like in 77, 78. Take on all comer meaning that the, some amateur wrestling champion or you know big tough guy from tough guy contest kind of guy tried to get in the ring you know and Masa was the <laughs> policeman of the company and uh, he was like, okay I'll go in the ring with them and then uh, he would take on non-wrestler that was his thing you know not every night though but uh, the, the promoter or the people like Eddie Graham and uh, Duke Keomuka and Hiro Matsuda they were very comf- comfortable to send Masa into the ring. He'll do it for you. Yeah, That's he, a tough guy. He went everywhere in the United States. Why did he choose to uh, spend so much time in the U.S.? In America? Yeah. I asked that, too. I said, the, the, since day one, he wanted to come to America and live. He went to um, 1964 Tokyo Olympic, you know, I mean, legitimate wrestler amateur wrestler 100 kilo you know he is also a major university college graduate you know so he um very intelligent guy you know he doesn't play you know he doesn't act like it but uh he went to four-year college graduate he went to 1964 olympic and great credential right but uh he did not like the dojo system of japan pro wrestling at the time you know he started with Japan, now defunct, of course, that uh, right after Tokyo Olympic 1965, he went to Japan Pro Wrestling, you know, Ricky Dozan's, you know, Japan Pro Wrestling. Of course, Ricky Dozan was dead by then, but uh, all this company, and they had the dojo system and everything. And he was looking at, this is where you start. But he was always planning on going to America and live since the day one. And he also joined the very first outlaw office of you know Japan, 1967, uh, no, 1966, 
Antonio Inoki's Tokyo Pro Wrestling. He was part of that too. And then Tokyo Pro Wrestling only lasted about 10 months. But uh, now then, you know, he quit, you know, Japan Pro Wrestling and to- Tokyo Pro Wrestling was out of business right away uh, after 10 months or so. And he had chance to go back to Japan Pro Wrestling or be freelancer. Or he was friends with Inoki too. Right before they started Tokyo Pro Wrestling, Inoki and Masa Saito spent about four months together, lived in the same apartment in Hawaii training. Actually, they were big four, right? You know, in the 80s, Inoki against Masa Saito so many times, right? Biggest baby face and biggest heel. But they were friends, you know, since 1966. And I never heard one bad thing Masa said about Inoki either. Masa always liked Inoki as a person. That's not very, that's not covered much, huh? No. Yeah. But he always liked Inoki. Well, while we're talking about Saito and Inoki, yeah. we probably should talk about uh, their Jungle most fight? Fa- yeah, the most famous or <laughs> infamous match that uh, happened in the 80s. Yeah, um, but the, we then we skipped 10 years or so. Okay. After okay, Florida. That's fine. After yeah, after Florida run, like 77 and 78, and he was tag team with, you know, Mr. Sato, who was great kabuki before he was great kabuki. He had that run too. Then he went up to New York, WWF, and tagged in partner partner with Mr. Fuji, and he was WWF World Tag Team Champion too. So that was the run that we cannot skip. You know, Masa, Mr. Saito and Mr. Fuji against people like Chief J. Strombo and Jules Strombo, if you remember. Like and Rick Martel and Tony Gurria. Maybe? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And Rick Martel and, and Tony Gurria. Yeah, 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 yeah. That was a, his favorite run, too, you know. Um, Florida was a great place to live, but you always made a lot, lot more money in New York and more exposure, too, you know. If there was no WWF run, he probably didn't have AWA run either, you know. After Vern Gagne watching him in New York run, Vern Gagne people invited him over to live in Minnesota. You know, I believe it was like 83. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and that's one right. year, 1979, he spent one year in Japan, back in Japan with New New Japan. He was part of the booking team, too. Yeah. And, um, you know, he was he was pretty key in some early 80s uh, New Japan stuff, too. Uh, Ishingun, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, Riki Choshu turned on Fujinami and uh, him, the Yatsu, the Killer Khan, and you know, made a very big, you know, Japanese heel faction, much like today's Bullet Club, you know, right? Yeah. Bullet Club is not much of a heel, but the faction, you know. Up until then, it was Japanese babyface against American heels, right? Traditionally, in Japanese wrestling. But they created Japanese heel faction. And uh, Riki Choshu was top guy, but... uh, Having Masa Saito come over from America and put you know put Masa into team like your senior member of the Ishingun and he um um he made it even more believable, right? They are working against the company. People believed it. You know, it was more like a revolutionary. You know, that uh, storyline they just don't go heel. It was more like 
this group of Japanese wrestlers turn on your company, Inoki, Fujinami, you know what I'm saying? Or Babyface. Then uh, we, this Japanese wrestling fan, really believed in this. This group is really revolutionary, you know, revolutionary. So there was Ishinga. So, uh, you know, you got me thinking um, about yeah. their, you know, they were really for the longest time considered Mr. F- going back to Fuji and Saicho as tag team champions in, in WWF. They were considered yeah. for a while. I mean, they were the, you know, dominant tag team. I mean, even historically from the uh, the early 80s, um, you know, one of the one of the most dominant and successful tag teams, tag team champions, so, yeah. I think, in, in WWF still, history. Still kind of stereotypical Japanese yeah. team, right? But they were, again, they were put over pretty yeah. strong for a while. Yeah, but then again, when you think about it, Chief J. Strombo and Jules Strombo, such a stereotypical Native American, too. Right. You know? Yeah. So stereotypes, you know. Well, in the the moon dogs in that era, they were kind of stereotypes. Oh God, yeah, yeah, right, yeah. right. So simple, huh? Simple yeah, formula. Yeah, simple. Yeah. Um, one thing we, I guess we we probably have to touch on that I think a lot of people know about is in yeah, in '84 yeah. the uh, the McDonald's incident with Ken Patera in was Ken Minnesota. Patera, right? No, it was right, Wisconsin. Right. It was Wisconsin. Yeah, Waukesha, yeah. Wisconsin. Yeah. Did, did, I went to visit him in jail two times, twice. Actually, what was that like? He, for, what was that like for him? Um, in actual jail? Yeah, did he? It was uh, almost like it's not a jail. They say it's not prison. It's a correction house or something. It's called. There was no big fence, you know. Uh, there was no big, you know, like a cage or it's like a big wall or anything. It's a, it, if you escape from that place. You'll die because it's the middle of nowhere in the Wisconsin woods. In winter, deers, you know, and the miles and miles and miles of nothing. So people don't walk out of there. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Right. In the middle of Wisconsin So it's like, oh, wow, is this jail? So it was like, kind of looked like you were more of a, what? what would that be? For a juvenile. Oh, like a like a juvenile detention. It's sort of like a minimum security prison. Yeah, very minimum, very minimum. But in the Midwest, Wisconsin weather, you better not walk out of there or die, you know? So, you know, you wouldn't just do that. And also he was respected that uh, they put him in the kitchen, you know, because he eats a lot. He has to, you know? And... Uh, he was in in charge of kitchen, so he said that I can eat anytime I want to. And what he did for the for 18 months, he was in there. He worked out, and lived healthy, and he looked better than ever. And uh, I think that gave him, you know, to you know, like a very good rehab, <laughs> you know, something, you know, um, he, not literally, but uh, he was more of a sex, drug, rock and roll type, right? until then and he said it too sex drug rock and roll you know but uh he was getting old too you know but uh it, should we go in go details about this mcdonald incident yeah for for those who may not know go ahead and uh, talk right because he was 30 some years ago yeah and, and it's fairly it's it fairly a famous small town. yeah very famous small town in wisconsin waukesha wisconsin you know um it's a small town spot show and probably after 11 o'clock 
nothing's open, right? Even McDonald's. And McDonald's closed. So uh, um, Kim Patera, big guy with blonde, bleached blonde hair, 280-pound guy, picked up the boulder out of the, you know, parking lot, big brick, you know, boulder, threw him into the closed window of McDonald's because they wouldn't, you know, reopen and serve. And then he parked, you know, he got up and came back to his motel room. Of course, it's a small town that somebody called 911 and then the big guy, big blonde guy threw a rock into a McDonald's window because they wouldn't serve. And uh, they would know where wrestlers are staying, you know, in that town, you know, in a small town and uh, hotel. And so sure enough, that the squad of, you know, policemen came to hotel room. Masa Saito and Ken Patera was rooming together that, that night. And uh, yeah, Ken Patera knew he was in trouble. So he uh, started calling his Minneapolis lawyers and everything. By then, not, you know, that the police, policemen knocked, you know, start knocking the door. Masa answered, you know, well, there's no Ken, you know, no, there's no Ken, Ken Patera. Yes, there is, right? Uh, I don't understand you. Yeah, you do. Anyhow, they, um, from what I gathered, how Masa told me, but still 30-something years ago, they, you know, spread, may spread into his face first. Are you with me? Yeah. So when the officers yeah. came to the hotel room. Yeah. Yeah. In a, such a small hallway, you know. One end of hallway, another end of hallway, they were trapped, you know. And actually, with just his underwear, Masa got out of room and shut the door. So he locked, you know, with his underwear. I said, no, no, I'm not in trouble, I don't think, but uh, Kane's not here. Yes, he is. And it's, uh, we're looking for a big blonde guy, you know. But uh, sure enough that uh, they maced, you know, spray onto Masa's face. So... Uh, he actually was blinded, so he had to push the guy, you know, people back, you know. And then and they, they started beating on his sin, sin, you know, and legs, you know, with this police stick, you know, nightstick. So the fight broke off, and Kim Patera came out of the room, and then there were a fight, you know. It's stupid to fight police officer, okay? Then or now, you know. Right. But uh, all in all, the fight broke off, you know, they, these two rest, two big wrestlers, same age, you know. Uh, they fought some 20 police officers from Waukesha, Wisconsin, and at the end, they took, you know, it took them two set of handcuffs to handcuff them because they're so big. And uh, they were arrested. And uh, if Vern Gagne, you know, took the case to Minnesota and had court, case in Minnesota, it would have been better, you know, or settled out of court or something, but they wanted to have the case in Waukesha, Wisconsin, for their pride, you know. Then the court took place in small town in Wisconsin, and sure enough, they were found guilty, you know. Make sense? Yeah. Was he, yeah. how did he feel about it? Did he feel that uh, he got railroaded, or was he angry? Oh, real angry. And also, I don't know if it was Ken Patera or Ken Patera's lawyer, but they wanted to make it sound like Ken uh, Massa started the fight 
or initiated the incident. See, if Ken Patera didn't throw the rock into McDonald's window in the middle of the middle of the night, nothing ever happened, right? Right. And also, if Masa wasn't rooming, you know, shared the room with Ken Patera that night, he would have been had nothing to do with it. You know, I would to you know to this date. Masa was victim of the circ, you know, of the circum, you know, circumstances. I think, but then again, he fought police officer too. And uh, Waukesha, Wisconsin, they wanted to have punish this violent crime, you know. Yeah. But uh, the reason he took the, there was an advice from other Japanese people and also from Great Kabuki that uh, give up your green card and go home, and you don't have to go to jail. Just go home, right? Go home meaning that they go back to Japan. Right. But uh, Masa said, uh, you know what, but I have green card and I want to live here in uh, in States and until I'm done with wrestling. And I, he was planning on living in America, so he took it, you know. I'm not giving up my green card. And if, it, you know, if they're going to send me to jail, I guess I have to take it. And uh, honest enough, he went to jail. For 18 months. But then he did uh, He did go back to Japan not long after that, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. He, I guess after 18 months in jail, that uh, he somewhat changed his mind too, you know, that, uh, you know, being in, in, in America for 18, 19 years by then, and also his parent, uh, you know, was still living, and uh, his parents were getting old, you know, and uh, after 18 months in jail, he was, he, he, he came back to Japan to visit, you know, for a month. Then this 1987, it was 1987, the whole Inoki program came up, you know. Right. New Japan and Inoki approached, you know, Masa to be Anthony Inoki's special opponent for the program, you know. One year period, Inoki and Masa had a sing five single match probably. You know, and all big show, you know, small palace, Osaka, Castle Hall, Jungle Fight, this and Inoki Live. It was Inoki's um, coming 30 years in business and uh, they were going to have lots of special, like a big event. And Inoki needed like a, your regular opponent. And Masa Saito was a perfect fit for that role. So, uh, what I guess, made him yeah, a perfect fit? What do you think made him a perfect fit? Both were same age, you know, and uh, they had long history, and also uh, the Inoki's biggest baby face, and who would be the biggest, you know, heel equal to Inoki in age, career-wise, experience-wise, um, uh, name-wise, you know. If you had Choshu against Inoki as a program, that would have different meaning. It was Inoki's program. You know what I'm saying? If you had Inoki against Choshu, it could could be Choshu's program to elevate him. But it was Inoki's time. You know, more more of a Inoki program, 1987. His last big run for the Superman event person. You know, and two years later he became politician. Remember? Yes. Yeah. And sure. also, he he decided that uh, decided to come back to Japan and be a part of the you know office. 
you know, he bought in, and uh, he bought stock of New Japan Company, and he became part of the um, board board of directors. You know, and uh, he was part of New Japan Company 80, 1987 on. So Masa came home with his American wife. Did uh, did the McDonald story get any traction or affect him at all professionally for the or by the the fans' perspective uh, in Japan? As a bad guy, you mean? Or did it just uh, you know there's criminal? A, yeah, there's a certain culture that's a little different in Japan. Did did it affect his stature at all in the eyes of the fans? Mm, it was something that happened overseas. You know, people didn't you know look at him as some somebody really bad or anything like that if, you, if that's what you're looking at no i don't think so yeah but the, he was not so proud of it though himself sure you know what i'm saying yeah he was not so proud of it so don't write up or you know play up that part you know because i you know he you know did time and uh he did what he had to do and uh um he was not so proud of it but he wanted to have a new life you know so I'm sure he did a lot of thinking while he's in there, you know. And uh, he didn't have, you know, one beer for 18 months period. All he did was eat and work out, lived healthy, and then he, he can have a 10 more year run, you know, and he, which he did, you know. Yeah. At the time he was like 42, though. You know what I mean? Yeah. And also he was part of the very initial, you know, Tokyo Dome program. He brought, you know, 1990. Uh, 8990 he brought AWA champion Larry's Bisco and well before we, he before had we a, get to that we should probably talk about the jungle yeah. match oh jungle match 1987 yes yeah, yeah. in uh, 1987 yes Inoki's idea of you know actually having match in jungle where famous Miyamoto Musashi if you can follow the samurai story and famous books actually that was a little island um historical place not a place for wrestling and it was outrageous that somebody came you know Inoki came up with the idea that we are going to have a match at that little island no people you know just camera and Inoki and Masa no referee and we just gonna film it no audience crazy idea right but like kind of like Jerry Lawler's nobody you know like a you know, thing that the Jerry Lawler against Jerry Funk with nobody at, in in the building. Basic same idea, don't you think? Yeah, I guess so. Sure. <clears throat> yeah, Did, but the, it, so how it was actual his historical site? The island, famous uh, island. Yeah, island was Miyamoto Musashi, the the most famous, actually who actually existed. Um, by the way, uh, famous samurai had the same as you know, famous in you know, a sword fight that very historical site they put the wrestling ring in there <laughs> and they actually had two hour match you know i thought the idea was crazy but now that the hindsight it became historical you know it became one of the most famous matches in modern time right so for those who don't know explain the match and especially how long it it supposedly took uh a little over two hours until you know they started when the place was you know still light out and uh yeah but didn't it supposedly take all day 
I think they edited no, it, it down, did. but didn't it? No, but, but actually, see, but wasn't at the time, it in, in store, but in storyline, didn't it take all day? Uh, no, 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 it didn't though. Oh, okay, it I was, thought like, it was like eight hours or something. Time of day. Because I was part of the the, the production, you know, at the time, 1987. I was part of the, you know, TV Asahi's World Pro Wrestling TV program, and I was actually in the studio editing, you know. So I saw the all. I did not go to the island, but uh, I saw the actual footage, raw footage, you know, and uh, we edited it into the format where we put it in like a 90 minute TV show. So we had to cut it, but the actual match was over two hours. And uh, old fashioned enough, Inoki or Masa, you know, Inoki does not tell TV people what they're going to do. You just have to film it like actual sport. So there's a intensity, you know, that the, uh, or you don't ask, you know, okay, what you gonna do today? They are going to get real, you know, strange and mad, you know. So there was real strange sense of tense intensity and the seriousness filming the match, you know. Inoki is not going to tell you what they're gonna do or what the plan. The camera crew has to just be there and actually film it as it happens, and that's that's what they did. And uh, it's the the difference between today's program and the 80s program. You know, wrestling people will at the end of the day they'll still kayfabe. Yeah. You know <laughs> what I mean? Right. Yeah, but I think it made, it made better product in a way. What was the uh, what was the response from fans? Did they like it or did they think it was kind of silly? Uh, I don't know cuz it's like I have no idea cuz it wasn't you can no way there was that was any good match or anything. It was something you've never seen, right? You know? And uh they just did it and they was reported and uh yeah. I, it's not the match that like oh that was great match and people talk about you know something that happened in summer of 1987 and people remember it as it was you know yeah, it was a spectacle and, uh, oh real spectacle oh <laughs> yeah and uh, yeah and then uh, Inoki revived his method by doing so. You know, so you, you could, let's talk yeah, about you this. You were, the, you were on the production. Tell me about. Uh, tell me about that. Was it was it challenging? Was it was it? Uh, did, it must have taken a lot of preparation, I would think. Yeah, but I was not a director's. You know, I, no, I was in the writer side of the program, and I I sat in the studio editing. You know, help editing with directors, but it's always it's always director and executive producers deal you know you know and also at the time i was 25 26 you know you just punk right just stay there you sit there in the corner you know and uh stay up all night and watch what they were doing you know at the time otherwise it's like a power less you know but i thought it was a great experience to stay up all night and you know watch what they do and uh you know, time for me to write narration. I'll write a narration. Then the announcer come in and do the, you know, captions and the background music, edit together, something like that. You know, yeah. Writer's status is pretty low, though. You know what I mean? And, uh, for TV production, 
you have to be director, you have to be producer to actually make, you know, production in the pictures, you know. And writers are there to write proposal and come up with line and uh, actual narrating, you know, narrations and uh, write a paragraph or two here and there, but never in decision-making position, you know. And but essentially on tape, the match is like a few minutes of spots, they run into the jungle, a few minutes of spots, they run into the jungle. And then at the end, isn't it like Inoki comes out of the jungle and wraps like a sleeper or something on Masa Saito, and that's that's the end of the it match. It was it's actually a like a lots of mat work, you know, working on legs or headlocks, making faces with headlock, doing the chin lock, making faces, doing the armbar. You make face, you know what I'm saying? Close up, you know. Not much of wrestling, you know. Right, Inoki walked into jungle and disappeared for a few minutes too. Yeah. But the, nobody knew what he was doing, so you still have to, you know, you had to keep filming it, you know, and you don't question what he did, <laughs> you know. Yeah. But uh, Masa was, you know, like really like he didn't say a thing, and he was there as Inoki's big opponent, you know. No, it's a, no interviews, no promos, just that. Isn't that strange? But it made more seriousness in it, I think. Yeah. If that makes any sense. Yeah, that makes sense. It was, yeah. It was at the time, see, TVSI was moving wrestling program from your um, Friday night, 8 o'clock, to Tuesday night, 8 o'clock. Then two months later, they moved to Monday night, 8 o'clock. Then switched back to Tuesday, uh, 8 o'clock. So they... um. New Japan wasn't happy at all about this changing time stuff for the program, you know. They were doing it because they were doing, you know, TBS Aki was you know, doing more other shows and they wanted to move wrestling out of the 8, eight o'clock Friday night spot, which was really comfortable for wrestling fans to watch. Traditionally, wrestling was always 8 o'clock Friday night, you know. But the TV people came, you know, they just switched it. Tuesday night, 8 o'clock. Oh, wow. See, TV people is TV people. Just like your, you know, when they moved WCW or when they killed WCW or when they killed um, Ted Turner's program. or See, TV people come and decide and do some nasty things sometimes, right? Yeah. Yeah, because they don't understand the you know, historical significance of this time slot. See, Friday night, 8 o'clock, they put the music program after wrestling, you know. But that's on there still today. But the Friday night, moving from Friday night, 8 o'clock was real big deal for wrestling community. But uh, it was no big deal for TV people. Anyhow, it was a time that they switched 8 o'clock Friday night time slot to other, you know, and then, uh, excuse my language, they jerked TV, you know, wrestling program around. Right. And also that was at the time they put some variety comic comedians you know you know studio segment into wrestling you know 1987 wrestling show but there was a studio segment with a bunch of comedians you know so they tv people thought they're gonna pop up the ratings and wrestling fans said no to that you know and i think jungle fight between inoki and masa was inoki's answer to TV people, 
you know, without saying it. Put this kind of, you know, program, put this kind of show into, you know, wrestling show, and then uh, you'll gather, you know, you'll, you'll generate the interest again. And uh, kind of did, kind of didn't. Three months later, you had Big Van Vader. Right, and then we're off to the races. Yeah, yeah. So, Making sense? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Makes sense. So we, I guess we should also talk about, um, really, you know, it it really wasn't a major title at the time, but his uh, AWA win. Yeah, brought in Larry Zbysko, and they, there was title match champion Larry Zbysko against challenger Masasaito at the Tokyo Dome. Not main event, but the third from top or something. But the AWA still had the major league name, and. Sure enough, Masa beat Larry Zbysko to become AWA World Heavyweight Champion in Japan when he was 47. <laughs> you know? And they did... Uh, that they was did, his... They did some yeah. sort of angle on television here in the States where he came out uh, wearing a mask of uh, the wrestler. His name was like the Unknown Soldier or something like that. He had like a camo mask on, and it was very obviously Mr. Saito under the mask, and he beat... Larry Zabisco, which, yeah, which set up that title. And at the time, you know, the AWA was pretty much uh, almost dead at the at the time. Dead, yeah. Was that a ninja mask or... or I think it was Unknown black? Soldier. No, I think it was a, a camo mask. I, I don't even know who that guy was that mm. played the Unknown Soldier, but mm. he came out in, like, uh, like camouflage pants and a camouflage mask. Oh, okay. Because at one point, you know, Mr. Go did that for AWA. Or Shinji Takano did that for AWA, or even guys like American guys, guys like Steve Olsonowski put a black mask on and pretended to be Ninja too. Right, Ninja so Go. So it rotated. Mr. Yeah. Go probably was. Yeah, Ninja Go. Something yeah, like that. Yeah. yeah. So probably rotated, you know, because Masa couldn't do back and forth that much, you know. Yeah. Yeah. What was the reaction? Today, what was the reaction when he won the when he won the title? AWA? Yeah. It was very, very happy, happy time, happy moment, you know? Because back there, had, you know, most most wrestling fans, like a smart wrestling fan, kind of expected Masa to win AWA title in Japan, you know? Yeah, why not? But the, sure enough, to next, you know, following month, he brought the title back to St. Paul Civic Center and dropped the title back to. There's Bisco, and I believe that was the last St. Paul Civic Center big guard AWA had. Yeah. What was yes. the, I'm trying to remember, what was the main event of that mat, of that card in the Tokyo Dome, 1990? I'm trying to remember. Uh, we can look it up. Yeah, but, uh, I know, I gotta, it's, it's blocking my, it's blocking my mind, I'm trying to remember. 1990, though. Yeah, yeah. it was 1990. It was not Inoki Sakaguchi against Cho no Hashimoto, was it? It might have been. Might have been. But that would be homework for next time, okay? Right. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah, Masa wrestled all the way to 1998, 1999. He, last match he had at the Nippon Budokan was against Scott Norton, who he, he, he himself discovered, you know, from Brad Reagan's camp. You know, he um, he made, he produced, you know, his Brad Reagan's and Masa was tight, you know, and uh, brought in Leon White. They created Big Van Vader, Tony Holm, you know, Ludwig Volga, Tony Holm. Uh, they 
brought a whole bunch of guys from Minnesota, like Mike Enos. And also they trained Don Fry after UFC run. He wanted to become wrestler, but not in America, but he wanted to do it in Japan. So he um, he had, a you know, like a sort of like a blushed up, but uh, what do you, what's that? Clash course, you know, wrestling class yeah. at the Brad, uh, Brad Reagan's camp. And Dan, Dan Fry was brought into New Japan as a wrestler. And Masa told, told Dan Fry that uh, don't work like a wrestler, you know, regular, you know, ordinary wrestler. You just do the UFC thing and uh, it will work for you. Then the Japanese wrestler will take it, right? Yeah. By the way, that uh, the main event was uh, Noki Sakaguchi and Chono and Hashimoto. Oh, great memory. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> it was bugging yeah. me. Okay, okay. So you looked up yeah. real quick. <laughs> yeah, it was bugging me. I was like, oh. Uh, man. Yeah. Anyway. So uh, Masa had a long run, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Even in that year 2000, when Ricky Choshu finally left New Japan and, uh, you know, formed a very short lived Double J. You know, Double J Pro Wrestling, Double is World and J is Japan. What the hell is the World Japan Pro Wrestling? It sounds odd, but uh, we remember it as a Double J. Riki Choshu and Tenru together and Masa Saito and Kensuke Sasaki, you know, and Kenso and all that. But uh, yeah, they had real short run, but uh, he did leave New Japan with Riki Choshu, you know. But there was falling out, you know, and then... Uh, Double J Pro Wrestling was such a short-lived, you know, and it, people don't remember that, you know, or like a member as a, like a real, you know, like a dark spot in wrestling history or something. You know, as you mentioned, um, he uh, he had been uh, not well for a long time. I remember, I don't think it was yeah. maybe a couple of years ago, I think, uh, when Brock, the last time he wrestled. Right, he, he visited, yes. He visited Saito, yeah. Right. You know, if this was such an if, if kind of part of the history, see, if Brock Lesnar was not signed with WWE back in 2001, it was? 2002? Yeah. Was a, when was the first time? 2001 was, or two, Maybe right? it was late 2002 and 03 because he wrestled Into Rock three. in the 03 right. summer. There was, a choice, there was a choice between New Japan and Vince McMahon, you know? If Brock took Japan deal, he would have had Japan run too, you know? Probably not, you know? But uh, so he did take WWE in a deal and the rest of the history, you know? But he did quit WWE a couple of times too. And the Brock is a very, you know, unique case at that. But uh, he could have been an another Masa Saito's boy. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. You know? Yeah. After Dan Fry, you know, did uh, you there know, was a couple. Oh, there was another guy too, Brian Johnston. You know, another UFC guy. Yeah, Brian Johnston. But the, he had, you know, um, a stroke while he was in Japan and gave up. You know, did uh, did he enjoy his time with the Southeastern and the Fullers? It always seemed like an odd pairing with the way the Fullers book and what the what the Fullers did to have. Saito and Fuji and did they uh did they bring those guys into Memphis when they when they I know they brought Fuji and was Saito there too when 
when they were, were booking Memphis and things were kind of dying because they introduced those guys so quickly and the Memphis fans didn't quite get it? Was was was, was it early early eighties? You mean? Yeah, I think it was seventy nine because it led to the the Tupelo uh, concession stand brawl. Uh, Masa was not part of it because okay. if it was nineteen seventy nine, one year period, he was back in Japan. Was New Japan? That's he was okay. part of. Uh, he was uh, assistant booker. So he left. He Japan left uh, the Fullers then. Okay, he didn't go to Memphis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he did work south though. Yeah, you know Pensacola. You know, Florida, Pensacola, golf course. Around there, he had run there, you know, but not that run. Yeah, he always seemed like an... Whenever I see those those videos on YouTube of him in Pensacola, it seems like a kind of an uh, odd fit because he was uh, much more serious and the, the, they were so... tough guy? Yeah, and they were so kind of cartoony and a little campy and so Southern. In Tennessee, yeah. early, early, early 80s, there was another Japanese team, you know, Atsushi on, Onita and Masafuchi right. combination in t- Tennessee at the time. So there was another Japanese team there. Yeah. 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 So what do you think uh, Masa Saito's legacy is? Oh. Mm. He was a huge star. You know, he had a long run. You know, also he he had success in America, success in Japan, and uh, maybe um, he was one of the very first Japanese wrestler who had uh, who had in- English speaking uh, jargon like a catchphrase in Japan, "Go for broke." You know, in Japan he was saying "Go for broke" in English though, but it, it became his English phrase in Japanese market. You can see, not too many wrestlers in Japan have catchphrases, right? But today's catchphrase a lot, you know? Yeah. Ingo Bernabes, you know, all that things. But uh, at the time, they we did not have much catchphrases, you know? But Masa brought in things like sex, drug, rock and roll, or go for broke, or, you know, do it in the parking lot, or, you know, just he mixed. He wanted to bring... American style interview and promo into Japanese wrestling Succe- succeeded a little bit. It didn't quite work. And also, he did uh, like a very first color commentary type, you know, in the early part of the 90s for um, New Japan. You know, suit and tie, you know, with ex wrestler sitting in a, you know, announcing booth and being a gorilla monster of yours. You know what I mean? So he did that in Japan. The first person who did that, you know. And long run for you know, Japan wrestling, uh, Tokyo Pro Wrestling, and back in Japan, New Japan Pro Wrestling, Ishingen also worked for Japan Pro Wrestling, and he did have tour with Giant Baba's All Japan. Then went back to states, AWA Run, and you know just, he had this so much variety of things, and he also had a tag team run, not a tag team champion, but the. He was regular tag team partner of Nick Bachwinkle in AWA. He was big. Also, before that, he was regular tag team partner of Jesse Ventura, Far East-West Connection. Remember that? Uh, that seemed like an odd pairing, but yes. Yeah, because uh, Jesse Ventura could talk, you know? Right. And uh, Jesse Ventura gave Masa a new nickname, Mr. Torture, if you remember. Oh, that's you know? right. Yeah. <laughs> I forgot about that. Yeah. yeah. Then they had a matching kimono costume and all that, you know, and uh, that was my fun memory too. And, uh, 
And also, he in, he was a, like, a, you remember his knee tights saying Japan? Yeah. Yeah. Not up until his run that the Japanese typical knee tight was more yellow and blue or purple and yellow or white and red or, you know, more bright color. But Masa introduced blacks, you know, knee tights and short trunks with Japanese flag on left-hand side and your legs say J-A-P-A-N, Japan. Remember? Yep. That tights was copied by a lot, a lot, a lot of wrestlers after him. You know, most wrestlers who worked in America had that knee tights, didn't they? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that kind of became the stereotypical Japanese heel costume, didn't it? Yeah, J-A-P-A-N on the side, you know, and then the Japanese flag on front. And uh, all dressed up like Masa, <laughs> you know. And, As you mentioned, uh, he, he was a legitimate yeah. wrestler. He was yeah, freestyle wrestling in the uh, 64 Summer Olympics that you talked about. What yeah, made yeah. him go to the, the working side of wrestling? Did he ever talk about that? Yeah, he was a Ricky Dawson fan as a child. Yeah. So it was Ricky Dozan that inspired him. Yeah, well, pro every kid in, who grew up in the 50s were wrestling fans, basically. You know, a um, lot of amateur wrestlers, even who went to Olympics, they started wrestling because he wanted to be like Ricky Dozan. You know what I'm saying? Wrestling fan first. Then you start amateur wrestling. Then eventually, I will become professional wrestler. I'm going to America. And he really did that. You know? Yeah. Very interesting. You know? So he um he had he had dream. He you know, he made the dream come true. And uh he conquered everything he was gonna do and he conquered. And, uh, very, very, you know, just like you are the I don't know who um what the type of person who dream about things and you actually work on it. And you really make it, you know, make it true. Comes, you know, all the dream dreams come true, kind of thing. And uh, yeah, so I admire that, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And also, he was like a, a very much into weightlifting, you know, weightlifting. You know, he had this bodybuilder like look, you know, not like your. You know, typical Japanese heels, short and barefooted, and bowing, you know, not great togo or your Mr. Moto type. He had athletic looking body, you know? Yeah, he had those big shoulders and traps and that barrel chest. Yeah, yeah. And he lifted weight, you know? And uh, he didn't tell me, but uh, he was part of the, you know, steroid era too, you know? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I would think given that Vern liked real wrestlers, Vern probably loved Mr. Saito. Yeah, because the finish was Saito suplex, your Greco-Roman suplex, you know? Oh, another thing I've, I have to point out, how popular Masa was in Minnesota, Minneapolis nightclubs and bars had drinks called Mr. Saito. Did you know that? What was in a Mr. Saito? I may have to make one. It's, uh, yeah. Mr. Saito is a shot, you know, shot, you know, okay. straight. Half, 
Yeah, shot. Yeah. Okay. Half you put peppermint schnapps. Okay. Peppermint schnapps. And half Bailey's Irish cream. Ooh, it's a sweet and sweet, right? <laughs> peppermint Does that make schnapps sense? And Bailey's And Bailey's Irish cream. Alrighty. It's both real sweet. No ice. Put it in a shot glass. You know? You know, with the, the peppermint schnapps and stuff, that sounds like a like a Christmas drink with sort of the minty yeah, flavor. Yeah, it's so sweet. Yeah, that yeah. sounds like a drink you'd have at Christmas. And also, Bailey's Irish cream that look like a, your your hot, you know your, your chocolate drink. Yeah. Yeah. Half peppermint schnapps, half Bailey's Irish cream, and put it in a shot glass, and you take one shot. That's it. <laughs> All right then. Well, you there know? you go. Well, we should uh, have a have a Mr. Saito. Oh, no, yeah, but uh, that's Mr. Saito. And I asked him why did they name it Mr. Saito. He says because it's so sweet. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a line, right? So uh, I'd forgotten. You maybe remember now. I mean, even uh, Harry Smith uses uh, the Saito suplex. Can you talk? Okay, right, right, right. You know, a lot of people still, that's still a very popular uh, move. It's kind of that gut wrench suplex. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, back to well, Ricky Choshu, yeah. you know, this, or Steve Williams. So, you know, a lot of people used it. Oh, yeah, it basically to... Luthes backdrop, too. Yeah, you know? yeah, the belly into the, yeah. into the belly. Yeah. yeah. You grab and also, and then, I'm yeah. very thankful is that, that uh, my last name, his last name, Saito, right? That... Uh, if it was not for Mr. Saito, most American people really like a Saito. S-A-I-T-O, right? Right. And a lot of people really like a Saito, Saito. No, my name is Saito. And uh, in wrestling, Mr. Saito was Mr. Saito. Therefore, they did not mispronounce my last name either. <laughs> I'm thankful. See, in school, they were calling me, hey, Saito, hey, Saito, right? No, my name is Saito. <laughs> it's different. I get it right, don't I? Yeah, you okay. got it. <laughs> Just want to make sure. Yeah, but a lot of people read it like a Saito. Hey, Saito. Like a Kato, you know? Not good. <laughs> well, I would you know, imagine you know, that uh, that a lot of uh, groups in Japan will probably be you know, doing uh, salutes and uh, memoriums to uh, Mr. I Saito. I think so. Yeah. Oh, and right now, if you look up, you know, Japanese Twitters and Facebook, so many stuff on Masa. I mean, I haven't, you know, I just put sad, 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 you know, sign in on it. But the, I have not posted anything yet. You know, I just have to give a lot of thought, you know. Well, I'm yeah. sure you will in the coming weeks because you're always uh, very thoughtful about uh, about those things. Uh, real quick, um, unless yes. you have, uh, we should probably we want to briefly mention that uh, your book is uh, oh, still Bruiser out. Brody, yes. Yeah, the Bruiser Brody book it is came still out. out. Still out. Of course, it's selling. Yeah, it looks like it's selling well. well. I see a lot of, a lot yeah, of, a lot yeah. of people uh, sharing it. And for those who want to know, I've had a, I've even had a few questions. To me, it's not in English right now. No, it's in Japanese. And I'm, in fact, I'm so glad I was able to, you know, finish this book before Bruiser Brody's 30-year memorial. You know, I was under a lot of pressure. And, uh, you know, I made printers and editors of this project kind of mad at me. It's, it's, 
send it in, send it. In. Give me one more day. Give me one more day. And I was pulling and pulling. But I was able to finish it at the end, you know. And uh, I was like really happy that I was, you know, able to publish it, you know, before this Memorial Day. And uh, well, I would like to have it in English, but I don't think I'm going to have time myself. And I'm hoping that someday somebody will be translating my Japanese book into readable English, you know? <laughs> yeah. We'll have, to, uh, we'll have to figure that out. Why don't we, why don't we do this, Fumi? Um, you have yeah. uh, Monday Night Raw and... Uh, Tomorrow morning, yep, yes. And SmackDown on Tuesday morning for you. Yeah. Um, why don't we get together maybe on your Wednesday? One more episode? Yeah, why don't we do, uh, why don't we see if we can squeeze an extra episode in on Wednesday or Thursday and we'll talk about Adrian Adonis and we'll talk more about the, the legacy of Bruiser Brody as it's the uh, 30th yeah, anniversary yeah, yeah. of both Adrian and yeah. uh, Brody's deaths. Yeah, because Adrian, you know, you, I have to, you know, I want people, I mean, today's fan to know that Adrian Adonis was much, much bigger star in Japan than he was treated in America. Like how people remember Adrian, most people only remember his gay act in WWE, right? Yeah, that was awful. But he had other strong run with just, you know, writer's black leather jacket and he was slick. He was one of the best wrestlers at one point, you know? Absolutely. And, uh, yeah, so I want to bring that up and uh, he was a really big star in early 80s in Japan, New Japan. And, and you uh, knew, we'll talk about that. And you knew Adrian fairly well. Yes. Uh, he invited me over to his Bakersfield home, uh, took an you know, airplane to Los Angeles, you know, L.A. And from L.A., I took this scary-looking commuter plane, like for six people, and flew over desert and went to his Bakersfield home. He was waiting for me at the airport, small airport in Bakersfield with his red Corvette, <laughs> you know? Kind of like a movie, you know? Open, red Corvette, 90 miles an hour on desert, you know? Well, we'll Smoking talk- fat joint. Yeah. We'll talk about that and uh, more. Yeah. Uh, maybe hopefully yeah. uh, Wednesday or Thursday. Here's what I'll do. Yes, sir. The, the 17th is the uh, the 30th anniversary of Brody's death. Who's a Brody's death? So yes, I will. Uh, p- we have that interview that you did from 1985 with Bruiser Brody. And has it ever yeah. been heard before? Audio tape. Been, yes. Has it ever? No, been it was my personal my personal cassette tape. Okay. I, I used will. We for will. My will interview. We'll release that on the the 17th for people. And then okay. you, then you yeah. and I will regroup uh, Wednesday or Thursday or something like that when we can uh, the, figure it out. And the one part of that audio tape, I believe it, he spoke like it was his will. On <laughs> hindsight, you know, he he said, "I am well aware that I will be forgotten when I'm, th- you know, like uh, 15 years from now." It was 30 years ago, and uh, he's not forgotten, but. Uh, Back in 85, he was talking like in future, 15 years from now, meaning like around the year 2000, right? But uh, he talked about his future back in 1985. So uh, I want people to listen to that. All right, we will uh, release that on the, the 17th. We'll put that out, and then you and I will regroup for another episode talking about uh, Bruiser Brody and Adrian Adonis. Okay. Where can uh, people follow you on social? Fumihiko Dayo. F-U-M-I-H-I-K-O-D-A-Y-O on Twitter 
and also Fumi Saito on Facebook. Find me. And uh, once we get through this, we'll do some questions. So be sure to hit the hashtag yeah, #AskFumi, yeah. and we'll do that uh, once we get uh, back to our regular schedule. You can follow me on Twitter at Jim Valley, also on Facebook at uh, Jim Valley. But we will uh, drop the Bruiser Brody interview on the 17th, and then uh, get back for another special interview commemorating uh, the losses of Bruiser Brody and Adrian yeah. Adonis not long after that. So until yeah. next time. So long from Tokyo. <laughs>